But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. And it looks like the recording software is working, mm-hmm. which is good to know, because I have fucked up many a recorded call. <laughs> so, then, so then it just becomes a Skype call. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the recording good, it's, aspect is important to making this podcast. <laughs> really, very much so. <laughs> <laughs> so I think today we wanted to do something a bit different, eh? Yes. Well, I think we should introduce the change of axis of where our, our podcast is going yeah, now we, you you and i podcast is going i'm sorry <laughs> <I guess. laughs> you and i you and i have been podcasting at this point for over three years just thinking back on it because as uh loyal listeners will remember you had to eat a sock after trump won and so that was 2016 and so we started the winner of that year that is true. I remember that now. I had forgotten about this. Uh, <laughs> my brain did not register that. That's nice. It's pretty amazing that we've been doing it this long, except all of our ventures so far have been uh, unmitigated failures. So yeah, uh, well, I think it's true. I think it's true. Uh, per, like I have commitment issues. Clearly, um. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? Life is busy. <laughs> who doesn't? Um, yeah, and uh, I don't know, life. So, you know what, I don't even think it was the commitment issue so much as the fact that we were dealing with the mundanity of the news cycle. And this <laughs> is what we had hoped to avoid when we had first started. We, we said, we're only going to deal with evergreen topics, we're only going to deal with topics that are ever relevant and that are taken from a really high position mm-hmm. and try to analyze what's going on, but we ended up getting caught up in the same news cycles that everyone else does. And it's just so depressing. It never goes anywhere. It's brutally uninteresting, both for us, the presenters who are talking about it, and for the people who are listening. Yeah. So we had the idea of taking a different tact. You and I are both very interested in political world building. So why not make a podcast about that? Mm -hmm. And that is could be anything, any kind of world building. It could be from ancient myths it could be all the way up to modern pop culture it's basically the stories that we use as a species to define our political imagination yeah it's also a bit of a nerd dream for me because i love <laughs> um <laughs> i love the, like you know like i love world building like i and i think proper world building uh in in either fantasy or science fiction it's always rooted in um 
I think I think good world building is is sol- solidly relies on a sort of caricature of the real world and like taking some real uh, elements, some political issues or some uh, social issues that we see in the real world, and then either pushing them to the extreme into a fictional world uh, or basically uh, replicating them in a sort of like analogous way, which uh, it can make it. Um, uh, I think that's what makes it very interesting in some aspect. Like I'm thinking in District Nine, which is this um, this. Um, um, what, 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 is there a series of these movies by the guy? I don't even know the name of the director, but in District Nine, which is set um, in South Africa, Blum Blum Blumcamp. Yeah, that that's something right. South Africany. And then it's clearly uh, it's clearly like a mirror of uh, the ghettoization of communities in South Africa. But then you put aliens into that, and then it allows you to go for to push this idea further and uh, and explore it a little bit more. Yeah, it's interesting how you can get used to a certain idea when it's human beings, but then when you change it to aliens, suddenly you're you're able to empathize again. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what good world building is. And and I've always, you know, I've always when world building is done well, uh, there's more to it than just the immediate uh, product that you're consuming. So if you look at the obvious example is to look at Star Wars, which is initially just movies, but then the the entire world building of Star Wars expands to books, video games. Um, the, every sort. I'm sure there's like uh, there, there must be like a musical. <laughs> <laughs> but like, and then and then you can ex- like it, it, there's sort of an endless uh, amount of of material to to that just supports this world. And it's nice to go and explore that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, Star Wars is really the granddaddy of myth building, of, of, of world building, because he consciously he consciously interpreted the Joseph Campbell, uh, you know, what, what is it? What's it called? Uh, like the Man with a Thousand Masks or whatever, where it's that there's a, oh, yeah. an arc yeah. to every heroic journey throughout mm-hmm. human history. He was consciously putting that into Star Wars and making it very digestible for a modern audience. And so mm-hmm. we'll definitely have to do a show or a series of shows, I would think, on Star Wars and that entire universe because we could really delve into that. But that's just a good example of of one really popular world building that's lasted till present. Mm-hmm. And then to like, and I, I think like I, I think getting into Star Wars, you almost need a degree. In Star, <laughs> Wars, Star, Star Wars lit, but um, but if you like, if you compare it to another very popular uh, world, uh, like like a world creation, which is Star Trek, like Star Trek has its own world that they they build very thoroughly. But because the values between because the values at the core of Star Wars and the values at the core of Star Trek are different, uh, they go in wildly yeah. different directions, and the two worlds are not even mixable. And that's and sometime and you know instantly when they when the new movies come out, you know instantly when something is tone deaf to the the, the rest of the world building that's been going on. And and so that's anyway. And looking at different medium, there's so much richness in in sort of like those uh thought experiments for sure i mean when you think about the latest star trek movies and how i think one of them one of the most more recent ones was it into darkness or something like that 
how it was made by the maker of the Fast and the Furious, I think. And so it was nothing but motorcycle chases, which (laughs) is a bit of a diversion from the Roddenberry idea that Star Trek is supposed to be this technocratic future where humanity has risen Mm -hmm. above all of the the baser elements that caused us to kill each other for thousands of years and that we're using this newfound community to explore the known universe Mm -hmm. together and to to bring that back to me basically like a a jackass style like mtv music video type aesthetic (laughs) is a real interesting diversion and i know as far as star wars is concerned (laughs) There's definitely been, a, you know, periods of blowback, whether it's from the prequels that a lot of the original fans had issues with to now the, what, what are we calling these new sets? The, the sequels? The sequel? Are we sequels? Okay, so, uh, yeah, a new set of people who are upset about the direction that the new movies have taken. Uh, yeah. It's interesting just how world building can take on a life of its own and be adopted by different creators and by different audiences and taken in completely different ways, despite the fact that it is nominally taking place in the same world. Yeah, that's interesting what you're saying, because definitely, like, I I don't know who knows on on Earth. I don't know who knows the most about Star Wars, but I know it's not George (laughs) Lucas, which is interesting because he's the creator initially. So, yeah, it does take on a life of its own. Um, so, um, so yeah, so that, I think that's the idea that started this, um, this, this new, uh, this, this new series, um, explore world building, uh, dissect, uh, either events, uh, in, in different worlds and see how they're analogous to like real world, uh, either events or, um, or, or facts or ideologies and, uh, and basically use our, our <laughs> policy degrees uh, into fiction. Yeah, society right? has really failed by investing in us because <laughs> this is this is the end result. I hope I hope they're happy with what they've done. <laughs> That's kind of what we were doing before, though, because we were taking news stories and trying to find out what the underlying um, like ideas were yeah. behind it. But now we're just going to apply it to something that. Uh, is not that timeless, is timeless. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because obviously, even if we come up with the best policies to deal with the various problems that plague our society, no one will adopt them. <laughs> so why not just go off into fantasy land where at least people can appreciate what we're talking about? <laughs> so um, I don't know if we want to reveal all the, the probably not. We should keep them kind of secret, like the because we already discussed a few worlds that we can. Uh, that we can yeah, explore. I, I think we, should, uh, we should hold them close to our chest and maybe just tease whatever the mm-hmm. next one's going to be at the end of the episode. Well, I think I think then uh, I think maybe it would be helpful as a good tease uh, in general. It's like I'm I'm very my, the experiences I have with world buildings, right? Because like not everyone. Uh, so I'm I'm very focused on a lot of video games, which uh, which I find do good job to explore world building. I'm especially interested in science fiction. Uh, I just like space shit. We, oh, that's the that's the uh, uh, the explicit the tag yeah. right there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but once in a while, I I do like myself a good fantasy world, and so I do like to uh, to to go into more fantasy land sometimes. So that's kind of like, that's kind of how I'm teasing what I'm going to be okay. talking and about. And yeah, from my point of view, I I really like world building in movies and television. 
and there are some real classics that I eventually want to get into that I think are either overlooked or when they are addressed, it's done in, in a way that doesn't really explore the parallels very well to our modern reality. And I, I think those should be dissected. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I think we're ready yeah, to go. Yeah, so if you want to jump into, you were, you were the lead on this first topic. If you want to mm-hmm. introduce it and maybe give a rundown of what it is. Yeah. Yeah, perfect, perfect. So um, uh, I'm going to take you on a little, like, uh, thought experiment, okay. Joel, because uh, I like, you know, I'm going <laughs> to take you on a wild ride. So um, you know those uh, 23 and me or whatever they're called, yeah. like the DNA tests that you that you that you can take, and um, you can nowadays it's so easy, right? You take like a saliva swab and you just send it in, and uh, and then you get a return, and then you can check your DNA, and you can do it with your siblings, and you can do it with your parents. Um, and recently, I was reading on the internet someone that did it with his dad, yeah, and realized that his dad DNA and his DNA. Uh, did not yeah. match, <laughs> which triggered, you know, sort of like family implosion. And then turns out the mom had banged the, 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 the brother and, you know, that sort of like that, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so imagine like you took a DNA test and then you realize you didn't match your, your father's, yeah. right? Like, you know, and then it, you're, you're being told like, oh yeah, sorry, like we adopted you. We should have told you before you did the DNA test. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So most people, yeah. you know, most people would would generally agree that it wouldn't matter. Like if it doesn't matter if you're adopted, like your dad's your dad, like it's the person that like you were with or your mom's your mom. Like it's your parents don't mm-hmm. really change. But a lot of people also go on a sort of quest to find their um, like their biological parents and like find out where they come from and find out who um, you know like a bit more about their true origin. And so you know, and then like if you take it like I I'm obviously I've, as far as I know have not been adopted. <laughs> yeah, as far as you know, <laughs> maybe there's a big reveal this year. But like I, I'm I'm sure like your, your viewpoints like family gatherings must become a bit weird. You look at a bunch of people, but you know that like you're there because a set of circumstances led you there, not because you were born into this this sort of family. And, and and that must like be really hard because it must shakes your views of the world and forces you to like you know like really question who you are and what like what is me if i am not a direct you know descendant of my of my of my yeah. biological parents or of my, of my parents it's kind of it seems more like a more of a modern preoccupation this like absolute blood link to create a family it it does it does it is interesting right because there is there i think there is some weight to blood versus um like just being raised with people, I, I and and obviously it'd be good if one of us was an adopted child, so we'd have a first-hand, a first-hand <laughs> yeah, experience. Yeah, sure. but, uh, <laughs> but like, but that's kind of what you hear, right? Like when 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 kids find out they're adopted, they there's a bit of a withdrawal process from the yeah. family unit. Like you belong, like you're like like you feel a bit like an outsider. Well, it, sorry and to keep uh, interjecting, yeah. but yeah, in if you live in sort of a more tribal society then it's a lot less important if you're a direct relation to the people that are your parental figures because you might have other parental figures within this tribe, right? Your uncles are maybe as close as your parents. Your aunts are maybe as close as your parents. So, you know, if you're just because you might be knocked up by someone else in the tribe, you know, or you're the result of that, rather, it's less of an issue. But if you live in an 
an atomized family unit where it's there are very little connections to other groups and then suddenly you're this outsider it becomes a, a much more of an identity crisis uh that's super interesting that you mentioned this and it is a bit like now it reminds me of like like you know when you see people who who, who think that the 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 purity of the bloodline matters it's it's always very close to yeah, eugenics yeah. <laughs> exactly which is another and, like very recent and, phenomena i mean the the idea of like purity of blood and, and eugenics is only about 200 years old and uh, all the mm -hmm. pseudoscience that came along with that and its relationships to colonialism and and um, genetics and whatnot but i think if you, I, i think eugenics themselves like as a as a science goes back to 100 years but like family lines go like thousands of years ago you can find family lines in the uh like in the arab world that people can trace their family lines mm -hmm. to the prophet or you can find like uh, you know all those like king dynasties in in europe you can trace them back through like like about probably around a thousand years and so there's there was a concern in the maybe in yeah. the powerful to prove that they were descended from something yeah worthy. for sure yeah to to give yourself legitimacy and then it's just however you're culture defines legitimacy as so if you're talking about maybe like the Habsburgs mm -hmm. in Europe the most inbred family of the bunch right um, that in that case yeah you, you're, you want your blood so pure that all your the only people you're marrying are your cousins to the point where you get all kinds of rare genetic diseases but then if you look at the Roman yeah. Empire emperors all, almost all of them were the, the people who they chose as their successors were people they mm -hmm. were not related to. They were young men who they groomed to become emperors. And that's so, true, yeah. That's an interesting difference. It, it's interesting how your culture ends up informing what makes a legitimate leader. Mm -hmm. And I've got, it's 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 good because you haven't seen what I no. prepared today, but like I have a question very similar to that that I'm, I'm coming back to later. And it's the impact of, of the environment on uh, on the systems that you build and what becomes like relevant to you. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm still, I'm going to finish my intro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the worst. <laughs> but it's good. I like, I, like, I like this. This is already, this is already fun. Um, so, so I'm sure once you, you know, when you notice that you're, when, when you're being told that you're not from the same family, I'm sure you start picking up on like all those sort of hints throughout your life that like you, you know, like, like stuff that didn't seem relevant before you could connect it to anything. But now that you can connect it, you see that it was always in your face that, you know, it was always, perhaps your hair was always different to your complexion was like, you were the only one with freckles in the family, or maybe you were taller than everyone. And like all of these hints, now that you know what they uh, are relevant to you can see them looking back um you know hence that your father was never mm -hmm. your real father uh and it's, today i'm going to talk it's 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 going to be a bit of a leap but today i'm going to talk about the video game home homeworld and homeworld takes this idea the idea of of origin to a crazy level um whereas it's it's a story of a people who find out that their planet was never the real planet in the first place and the consequences of that discovery on their history, launching them into a quest to find their biological planets, uh, a quest that will shake the political, economic, and social foundations of their entire civilization. Uh, so the game today I would like to talk about is Homeworld. It's a game that came out in 98. I think I should really have looked up when <laughs> it came out. But I, Late night. I, I felt like... 
I felt that I grew up on that game. Like it came out on like Windows 98 back in the days, and it was like it, you were controlling those ships in space, and 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 the game has I guess stayed with me for um, like what 20 years now or mm -hmm. something like this, and it's just always been in the back of my mind. And so I'm really happy today that we can talk a bit about about Homeworld. Um, so what I will try to do is give a brief overview of the major plot points. So if you haven't played this 20-year-old game, uh, you should you should not listen to this because it will spoil. <laughs> Have they re-released it all? Uh, and I'll try to. Have they uh, remastered and re-released it at all, or is it something that's lost to the sands of time? Yeah, uh, it was remastered recently. It's available on Steam. It works on modern computers, and I highly recommend it. It's a very good uh, space real-time strategy game um, with a very unique story and, and a hook that uh, I, I haven't been hooked in a world like this in, in quite a while. So I'll try to go over the major plot points and show, uh, you know, like try to find, talk about what the political system behind this seems to be, uh, how it compares to ours, how events uh, that happens in a game mirrors actual ones, and the kind of parallels that exist in the game with it, like in their their political issues with our uh, with our political issues. So, um, so yeah, so you ready to talk a bit oh, about absolutely. Homeworld? Let's do it. That's nice. That. And my my goal, like you know, I, I'm a, I'm a man driven by metrics. My goal is that we are just a bit smarter <laughs> at the end of it all. <laughs> so um, so in Homeworld is set on on a planet called Karak, uh, which is very similar to Arrakis from Dune. It's a desert planet. You know, it's kind of there's a bit of a so science fiction trope in it. So Karak is this desolated planet. Uh, life is very harsh. When you live at the equator, uh, no life lives at the equator. Life lives on the ground because the, the the heat is too much. Uh, and people on Karak mostly lives at the poles where, uh, they don't really have snow, but the poles are more temperate, uh, regions of the, of the, of the planet. Which means you kind of have two distinct society evolving at the same time. You have one at the North Pole, one at the South Pole. And they're, they're both like, kind of like the, the, the core of the world on Karak. Um, However, as Karak develops, and, and, and they, they start doing DNA testing of their planet, of the life of the of the the animals that live there, and they find out something very strange in that uh, the DNA of the the humans on Karak, or the let's call them humans, it's going to be easier. The men, the people, the people of Karak, uh, their DNA matches zero of anything else on that planet. Which brings very deep questions, and so it's taken from the Karakian society. It's taken in two ways: either it's like, well, this is a this is a big anomaly, or uh, some people revert more to religious explanation, like we're the chosen people, like we're you know this sort of like like how I'm not sure how we would react if we found out that uh, that we had. Uh, no ancestors, like we had no missing link. There was, if there were no apes on Earth and humans just were, I think it would raise a lot of questions into uh, where we come from. Um, immediately before we get too far into that story, because I think right now, uh, right now, I, I'd kind of like to talk about the the political structure in this world. So Karak is a, a very clanic system. Where uh, it feels a bit like ha uh, Game of Thrones, where you have major houses and then minor houses, 
and uh, those those my those major houses. There's maybe six or seven, eight of them, uh, or all organized. Uh, they control each their territory, and because it's a science fiction trope, they each have their own uh, uh, specialty. You know, like the, there's one there's one house that's really good at war, and there's one house that's really good at mining, and there's one house that's really good at arts, and and yeah. you you get like you get the tropes. Now are these uh, are there. these houses split between the north and the south, or is it different civilizations? They are. There is there is a bit of a mix of uh, there. There's a bit of a mix. Uh, I, I don't know enough about where they're located. They're just they just co- most of them coexist except for one. Uh, one house which uh, lives in a desert, uh, which nobody seems to have any contact with. You know that sort of lost mm. tribe of people, um, which which evokes like images of um, Tuaregs living mm. in the Sahara, since the or Sand people in Star or the Wars. The Fremen and um, yeah, so they're they're kind of like free men, but they're also religious fan, uh, fanatics. Uh, they, they live in a desert, a sort of an ascetic life and, and sort of like, uh, uh, zealously promotes it as the only way to live to not anger, anger the gods. And, you know, they're kind of the people you don't invite to the party. <laughs> <laughs> um, they don't, there's, there's no big, uh, kind of like House of, uh, sorry, uh, Game of Thrones. There doesn't seem to be any sort of like, global system like it's just many houses interacting with each other trading not being at the war uh but definitely living in this sort of world where resources are very scarce uh where there's there's not a lot to go about and 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 life is very very harsh and um, and perhaps because of this uh, they don't have, it, it's not a democratic system. Like, people don't vote. The people that control these houses or the descendants of the former, uh, you know, the, the family lineage, uh, houses can range from maybe dozens individual to a thousand. Um, but in Homeworld, there's definitely doesn't seem to be any sort of idea of democracy or involving lower houses in, a, in the decision process, which uh, which is also kind of how clanic uh, system works nowadays too. And so my question it goes back to what you already like opened up the door to is like it's it's like is are there any example of uh like uh, political system in which uh that are not top down uh in very scarce resource environment because it seems that when resources are limited you don't give power at all to the people uh, mm-hmm. below you as they could maybe take some of those resources but like I'm trying to find an example and it seems like um like, can democracies exist in a desert? Is like, that's my life. <laughs> um, yeah, typically, <laughs> typically the thing with desert type societies or any kind of society where there's very low population density, uh, it, it tends to naturally invite clannish hierarchies. When there's very, very, very limited resources uh, to the point where there are very few people at all, and and their people exist exclusively as hunter gatherers, then those tend to be very communitarian and democratic. But once people reach a certain population level where they can uh, predate on other people, then they become hierarchical. And it takes a while for the possibility of a somewhat democratic system to arise, and it does so exclusively in 
settled societies with which have alternative means of creating wealth, mostly through commerce. I like this uh, this idea that it, when the group needs to be large enough, because I guess that is the example I was looking for of like a, like smaller groups that decide everything collectively. Uh, those those have existed, and there's a lot of examples of these. But but yeah, like a larger. Uh, I wonder if there's a like if there's a critical size in which uh, like a, a, such a system becomes unstable. And I I would say that the the point where it typically flips over is what is the major challenge for the group? And in the case of hunter gatherers, the major challenge is being able to survive against nature. Nature is the obstacle. Whereas once you get to nomadic peoples the major obstacle becomes other people. And so that's what ends up influencing your political system. What you're doing as a nomad is primarily raiding. You're going to steal the livestock of your opponents, but the tribal peoples, the uh, hunter-gatherers, they aren't even going to likely encounter another tribe. So they have to mm -hmm. work together. And if anyone is behaving in an authoritarian or selfish way and trying to hoard resources to themselves they're going to very quickly be ostracized. And to be ostracized in that kind of environment is a death sentence. Hmm. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. And there's also um, there's also a clash that happens sometimes when you have those, well, that's what you were seeing in Western Africa right now, where uh, nomadic uh, herders are starting to encroach on the land of mm -hmm. settled people, like people have like, or trying to do uh, uh, agriculture and, and, and grow crops. And uh, and because you're you're forcing these sort of two uh, system together, it leads to violence. And just last uh, during the last week, I think 160 million people were killed by um, uh, in in sort of those clanic uh, clashes. Yeah, there's a real in West Africa. There's a real schism in the climate between the people of the the um, basically the scrubland that is just below the desert. So their livestock mm -hmm. can't exist, but you can't really grow any crops. So these people are herders. Mm -hmm. And then below them is the people of the humid portion of West Africa, and they can farm. And the, that conflict has been going on since forever. And they just end up adopting whatever international ideology comes through the region. Uh, initially, it was the Islamic uh, religion coming from the north, from North Africa, through the slave trade. The uh, Muslims from the north brought Islam, and then they brought back slaves to the north. And then the Europeans came from the south, and they brought Christianity in exchange for slaves, essentially. And they established <laughs> Christianity in the what was still sort of a pagan, animist-type south. And a lot of people... Nowadays, when they read the headlines, they interpret this as a conflict between Christianity and Islam because of these historical developments. Yeah. But it's really a resource and tribal conflict between people who have different lifestyles. Um, and, you know, it's really interesting because the British Empire had a very strong presence in the region. And mm -hmm. they really preferred working with the Islamic tribes because it was an extremely hierarchical system much like Victorian Britain. So they had a commonality in how they organized their societies and they understood each other much better, despite the fact that mm -hmm. the British shared the Christian cultural links 
with the southern people. That's a, that's interesting. So yeah, so it's not it's not so much a um, an alliance of circumstance. It, it's it's because you sh- you understand the power structure of the other, and therefore mm-hmm. it fits better in what your power structure is. Yeah, it's more practical to cooperate with people who have a similar political system to you, regardless of your sympathies for people who have the same culture. The the hard politics ends up trumping any sort of cultural affiliation. Mm-hmm. And and to go back to Homeworld, that's something you do see. Because there exists this sort of uh, extremist, uh, like highly zealous religious uh, tribe, it sort of bands everyone else together against that, because, even though they would not necessarily work together naturally. But because there's this sort of other out there, it unites them. So... Ultimately, this whole thing, this whole like uh, unstable piece or, or situation on Karak, uh, every good science fiction story needs a needs a needs a tipping point. And the tipping tipping point in the homeworld is when uh, some of the northern tribes launch a satellite into space, and the satellite has the the goal to map out the stars. And they're they're kind of getting to that technological advancement point where uh, they're starting to think about space travel. However, uh, a malfunction happens and the satellite gets flipped 180 degrees. So instead of pointing toward the space, it turns out it's pointing at the planet. And what they find out uh, is that satellite is mapping out their planet. And deep in the middle, near the equator, deep in the desert on the planet, uh, something, something pings back. Just some anomaly on the map. Something is beneath the sand and nobody knows what it is. Uh, Some sort of ruins that nobody knew was there because it's deep in the desert where nobody lives. And that becomes known in the homeworld world as the primary anomaly. Um, and it sort of create this quest to get there first. And, and, and when I was like, for me, it reminds me a lot of those expeditions to Timbuktu, you know, this sort of like lost city in the middle of this, the desert with, uh, this hidden knowledge or this lost knowledge that, that you kind of want to, it's too bad it was burnt down recently, but Timbuktu was, <laughs> was for a while like happened. Yes. Anyway, that's, that's unfortunate. <laughs> Well, what it what it reminds me of is when the uh, Nazi regime uh, ended up supporting a an expedition to Tibet to try to uncover the origins of the Aryan race and the idea that the Germans were the descendants of a sort of super people who had come out of the steppe from Central Asia and that if they could find this origin, then they could prove how superior they were and in some instances maybe discover the technology that had allowed them to like i did not know they did that but it sounds like a very nazi thing to do (laughs) (laughs) um yeah (laughs) yeah and and i i guess in in homeworld it's sort of like uh it's it seems like it's more driven by a quest for discovery and a quest for knowledge uh, and it creates this sort of mad rush where people start like everyone wants to get there first, right? Like it, and it, it's sort of like it's very reminiscent of uh, um, the mad organization and logistics of the Crusades, where it was just like let's just ship people there, let's you know let's try to get people there as fast as we can, and then perhaps they'll get there, or perhaps they'll be turned into. Uh, child labor by slavers uh <laughs> depending on which uh which crusades you get 
uh, ultimately, like lots of shit happens uh, because of the crusades that are incoming. The 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 the, the desert tribe—they're getting real angry, and so they start raiding those cities. And and the discovery of this thing seems like it starts this sort of like planet-wide unrest where everything becomes harder, and you're always clashing with those tribes from the deserts or clashing for resources with each other. So it it, it disturbs the equilibrium uh, to 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 like to its core. Um, and then when they find, ultimately they find what's in the desert and what's in the desert is a crashed spaceship and the people that are very clever will put two and two together. And at this very moment, the entire people living on this planet realizes that they are not from there. This is not their planet, but they are the survivors of a crashed ship that, uh, that landed there. Uh, and they basically, they basically have been surviving for a millennia now, or four millennia now, and they entirely forgot, uh, where they came from. Uh, which changes, which is sort of a, you know, a reckoning moment for, for, for people. They kind of like, uh, they realize that, like, it changes the fundamental, uh, vision that they have of themselves and of the galaxy. Uh, and it, it, it turns everyone toward the same quest of escaping that, that, that desert planet and finding the real home. Um, which then, uh, which then makes me ask, I, I don't know if we, like, you know, it's this kind of this trope in science fiction where everyone unite on their common mission. Like, the humans are attacked, so yeah. wars and front barters don't matter. Like it does matter if you're American or Russian, you're gonna work together against aliens. Uh, and I've always wondered. I don't know if it would really happen like that. <laughs> I think it would be more of a like uh, I'm trying to like get the up on my natural enemies through the aliens, or you know what I mean, like a sort of like bartering system. Who can be friendlier with them? Uh, yeah, it's interesting. On the one hand, you have the case where Ronald Reagan himself said in a speech that if the aliens did attack, that the Americans and the Soviets would put aside all their differences. But on the other hand, throughout human history, you have examples of various peoples allying with a new invader, a new alien-type invader, and using it to their benefit against their neighbors who they despise more than anyone else. Yeah. You get this a lot with, uh, say, the Ottoman Empire working its way into uh, southeastern Europe and various Christian vassals of the Ottomans being all too happy to cooperate with an Islamic government just so that they can get one up over on their Christian neighbors. Uh, that's And then if you look at First People here in Canada, um, like they, they allied themselves with either the French or the English based on ancestral uh, division. And and so yeah, that's mm-hmm. they, instead of uniting against a common enemy. Hell, they even uh, united with the United States, which was pretty egregious against all sorts of tribal ambitions. Or even you know maybe an even worse contrast would be the tribes of Mexico that united against the Aztecs because the Aztecs were incredibly cruel to all the tribes around Mexico City and. Then they realize only too late after the Aztecs had been defeated by them and the Spanish that the Spanish were infinitely worse. Um, and I'm thinking like it's sort of um, 
don't know. And and what happens after these these? Um, I, it's always curious to know what happens after. What happens to the alliance of convenience after the uh, the common objective is gone? Because uh, like you know, the big example is the United States and the USSR, which were allies of convenience mm-hmm. for a very short time before uh, you know basically being at each other's throats for fifty years. Um, and I, I wonder if this you, you'd find the similar uh, situations in like those uh, those alliances you talked about. Yeah, I mean it's it's in, in throughout politics, short term fear seems to trump everything else. So with the case of the Soviet Union being able to recognize the menace mm-hmm. of the Nazi regime and deal with that was far more important than uh, you know not cooperating <laughs> with the capitalist West. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And then once that was gone, the biggest stress switches. Um, yeah. yeah and on. so, but anyway, so regardless of what happens here, in home world, everyone unites, everyone's happy. Uh, and then for 60 years, all the resources on the planet are pooled toward building a space station and then using that space station to build a spaceship, which I think is how we're going to build our first spaceship to on Earth, by the way. I think we're going to... We need our moon base before we can get uh, because we're not able to build something there. So they build this gigantic spaceship, and then they get the best of the military of every every house, and then they pull the resources. Everything is going well, and then they take their first hyperdrive test, and it's the first time a hyperdrive test was ever accomplished because they needed to find that ship in the desert to get that technology. And so they do this. Uh, they do this uh, hyperdrive test uh, to, um, you know, when they were building this big this big ship that took 60 years. They also had sent out like a sort of like the B the B crew, you know, like the, the on this on the smaller ship, and they left on like conventional engines, like slowly trudging to space in a sort of like I'm not sure what the point of that mission was, but in a sort of like uh, you know, just let's see how far you can go before we catch up with better tech. Um, which might be what happened mm-hmm. to Voyager, by the way. I hope one day we can recover Voyager. Uh, that'd be pretty nice. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, like, just catch up with Voyager, and it's been in space since the 80s, but anyway. So, um, so the, it's, it's going to do this big hyperdrive test, and when they get to this, uh, the B crew, uh, it turns out that, uh, well, there's nothing to find. The B crew has been entirely destroyed, and everything that's left in space are, like, the remnants of that, that big ship. Which is a bit alarming, you know, because like you, you, space doesn't, in, if you look at our space, like losing contact with someone in space is very scary. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a bit alarming for this crew. Mm-hmm. Do they, do they have any, get any, they get, uh, they find raiders. Or? They find like a bunch of like, uh, raiders, like sort of like, like there's clearly, like they don't seem that alarmed that other people are living in space, which is perhaps a plot hole. Yeah. Because uh, <laughs> they, they have never, they haven't <laughs> be been in space ever yeah. before. Anyway, so they find these sort of like raiders and it's like, okay, I guess they just, uh, they're responsible for that. And it, you kind of, kind of leave it at that. You know, it, it doesn't seem to be that uh, defining of a moment in their, in their narrative. Uh, however, when they come back to their planet, um, what they find there, that will change them. So they get back to Karak and they find their home planet uh, burning entirely. The entire surface of it is engulfed in a firestorm. Uh, the big orbital station that they launched from has been destroyed. Nobody replies on the radio. Nobody's out there. It's just like it basically come back to a graveyard. So it's a bit if you've seen Battlestar Galactica, like it's kind of like this where you have this one ship full of people 
and they realize in that moment that they are alone and that they don't have any more you know the social net is gone there's no more support system um mm -hmm. However, as they contemplate their utter destruction, they find that there is a bunch of cryo trays because, you know, it's science fiction. So they have, uh, they have about half a million people floating in space in, in big, big ships that are, they're essentially frozen colonists, right? Like you don't know how to fire. So they pick up these people mm -hmm. and they notice when they pick them up that people are still attacking them. The people that did this are still around. And so a short battle ensues in which the uh, the, the people from, from Karak manage to capture one of their enemies. And um, shortly after that battle, they interrogate uh, the, the enemy. And they are told that their planet was destroyed because they broke an intergalactic treaty that was 4,000 years old. And the treaty said, forbade them from ever using hyperdrive technology. Which then brings me questions, because first of all, like, is a 4,000-year-old treaty binding? Like, can you really, <laughs> can you really claim that? Like, I want to know, because I think it's a bit abusive on the part of, of the, the enemy side. Um, I think the uh, I think the Guinness factory in Dublin has a nine thousand year uh, treaty to lease but is the land. Because like because yeah. like what it brings back to me <laughs> is like I you, uh, one of the fundamental piece to like the 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 the, the modern French Republic is uh, is the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, which is something that was drafted by um, Lafayette and I think Jefferson helped uh, like review it or something like this. Like it goes back to the 18th century, and uh, and and, yeah. and one one core principle in it is a generation is not entitled to subject future generation to its own laws. And it's this idea that mm -hmm. because people said that it was like this before doesn't mean that it is not immutable. Like you, you can't. It's it's only the current generation can govern itself with the laws that they choose. Yeah, I mean that's it's an interesting notion, but it certainly flies in the face of <laughs> every other existing treaty or a law where it's constantly brought down right. generation like because because it brings this idea that a treaty to be binding should be renewed like there should there should be there should be a time on treaties like, like what four thousand years does seem a bit excessive <laughs> if the people who are uh, bound to this treaty have evolved to such an extent as to forget mm -hmm. the treaty entirely then perhaps it's a call for it to be yeah <laughs> like as a reminder <laughs> as a gentle reminder to to avoid planetary genocide yeah maybe a warning maybe you send like a cc desist <laughs> or something before you commit genocide um yeah it does seem a bit abusive though interesting fact they could probably claim since you know i told you there was this house that was living in desert and and fanatically religious uh and basically the basis of their religion was don't evolve technology like don't go to space because the gods will get angry. So like you could say from the the enemies called the Taidan. So from the Taidan, you could you, they could claim that there was knowledge of the treaty on the planet. Therefore, it warranted its its utter destruction. Yeah. They sure pass sentence real quick though before <laughs> having a fair trial. <laughs> um, and then you know like it's um like 
I don't know, like, should should Japan still be only a defense force? Because, like, the people today are not the same people now. Or do we wait till everyone responsible for the, the for former sin to die and then you can you can renew the treaty? Like, what's the rule here? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's especially in that case where the government is actively pushing to get more of a uh, offensive-type mm -hmm. force, despite the fact that those same people refuse to recognize the crimes committed mm -hmm. by imperial japan or so yeah so is is this like an a lot an acknowledgement of the sins of the fathers but yet once none of the fathers are alive you kind of release the i don't know i i'm i'm, I'm curious about the ethics of of uh, of a four thousand year old treaty um which mm -hmm. which i guess we, we didn't have uh we didn't have a lot uh, of four thousand year old treaties <laughs> yeah, there's not a lot of Yeah. and then uh, and then it brings also this question like like homeworld is a very brutal universe where you know space tends to be because it seems like space is too big to police and therefore it's like whoever's the strongest mm -hmm. so who in like let's say let's say it was an unlawful genocide uh, of Karak like who's like there's when there's no judiciary body that can enforce it um like would you do and it it's kind of like this uh it brings back to the international criminal court like w which is toothless other than its um soft power which is very interesting in a in a you know like like it's it's it only has power if it's recognized by the people being judged therefore it's only power it's really is inf its influence yeah it goes back to a might makes right sort of system a real ancient style way of justifying actions and that you could consider things right or wrong but it's all about how you back it up and then it goes to the victor to decide what ultimately was mm -hmm. right and what was wrong um It does. I mean, the, like as every genocide, there usually are consequences. Whether they're not short term, they they have a tendency to be a bit uh, longer term. Uh, in the case of the destruction of Karak, like so, some of the consequences. Uh, one of them, for instance, is the uh, it, re it it puts in light the true evil of the Taidan Empire. Like when people start hearing that it just burned 300 million people, like you know, in the snapping their fingers. Uh, it, it, it gives rise to like a, the, what's called the Taidan Rebellion, where the the outspoken elements of the Taidan society try to take down this brutal regime. Okay, so they're not the people who've committed this are not united in their decision. It's kind of a galactic autocracy, right, with a big emperor that decides everything, with uh, with the sort of like the, the the small circle of the emperor, which is extremely influential. But it doesn't, as every power that is absolute, it doesn't always permeate to the bottom elements of society, and that's often where these people will will want to seize some of that power, and that's what you see. Like they they basically instrumentalize uh, the the killing of of an entire people. To justify the rebellion. Okay, so they are already primed for rebellion, and this right. is the justification. They're not doing it no. on purely moral grounds. They have yeah. ulterior motives. It's kind of like the yeah. Operation Valkyrie, <laughs> where the Prussian military officers wanted to uh, uh, wanted yeah. to kill Adolf Hitler so that they could restore their rightful place, and they used his his yeah. extremism as a cudgel to be able to justify yeah it is definitely the instrumentalization of of a, of a tragedy 
which seems to be um, which seems to be most of the time that tragedy happens. Like I don't know. Like is there a true reactive movement that 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 you can think of? Because it seems like tragedies are always used as sort of a as a justification for things. Like can I think of a react yeah. like a purely moral reaction? Uh, I would say the abolitionists are probably a good example because they didn't have sure. anything to gain from the end of slavery. They were doing it for purely. So they would. Uh, some people would argue that the 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 North, which was advocating for the end of slavery, uh, w was way more prepared for uh, change in industry that required less human labor, as they were more industrialized and had more uh, like they basically had better technology up north, where the South was more dependent on human labor, and so th there was an economic incentive to end slavery. Uh, if only to get an edge on half the country. Uh, yeah, I, I would I would agree that there were certainly people who would stand to to gain in some respects. Although there they were completely yeah. different industries. The the South was entirely an agricultural issue, and the the slaves were working in agriculture, whereas the Northern industrialists were mm -hmm. getting immigrants mm -hmm. to work in factories, and so they weren't really. If, if anything, the North was taking the raw material from the South and transforming mm -hmm. it into better products they, they might have political reasons to making sure that you limit the number of slave states so that in non-slave states hold the balance of power in congress mm -hmm. uh, elements like that but uh, by and large the people who were abolitionists were a lot of preachers and a lot of just fundamentalist christians mm-hmm I'm not disputing, by the way. Like, like yeah. simple. <laughs> there's simple evidence that the abolition was a one of the main cause in in the in the war. Um, some people want to say it's not, you know. <laughs> like, yes. Um, so so anyway, so that's like like for this empire, that's one of the the one of the the very obvious consequences they face is that by 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 using extreme means, they end up destabilizing their own position. Uh, position from within. Um, and it does bring, like, what you find later down the story, because lots of, lots of shit happened. Like, it's like, and I'm not going to go, like, uh, like, I've already been into enough detail. But ultimately, the, uh, the, the people that were slighted, the mothership and its, uh, half million survivors that they picked up from space, they end up being able to find allies through space that are just as horrified, uh, about what happened to Karak. And then together, not really together, they more benefit from their soft powers. So like uh, influence and trading and stuff like this. And they eventually managed to take down the empire all on their own. And it's a nice, uh, you know, like a uh, revenge story. Uh, like uh, a mothership takes revenge for burnt planet type story, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> um But as the, the story goes on, uh, and there's themes in the, the later games in the series, there are uh, strong themes about the consequences on the original people from Karak. So uh, the survivors of Karak, the people who survived the genocide, uh, were mostly people who were frozen. And the people who were frozen were chosen to be frozen based on their their skills as like um, the high rate of survival um, you know so young people healthy people uh, and because of the devastation of their planet their entire population becomes uh, these young people with no experience 
there's there's no more there's no more old people with like uh, either expertise or the experience to share with people. Uh, a lot of them end up suiciding each other, facing the 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 absolute uh, loss. Because uh, you know you you're waking up from space and you're being told, oh yeah, everything you knew, it's just dead now. Now you're, <laughs> you're just you're just <laughs> that living. That is a this. rude awakening. <laughs> uh, which then turns several of them into uh, like zealously vengeful for whatever uh, sin was committed against them, and and use uh, and use the justification of uh, uh, extreme pain caused on them to then cause pain onto others, uh, and then it sort of it sort of creates this like endless cycle of of uh, of, of just ultimate autocracy and ultimate power. Where uh, anyway, where, and there are some real life examples of this of of, yeah. uh, of groups of people who uses their pain as a justification to inflict more pain, um, and it's a very I don't know if it's a very human uh, reaction to things, but um. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way of justifying a lack of empathy for your enemies is to point out the horror that you've had to endure. It, it's interesting because you, you get a lot of this. I don't know if you've ever read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I have not. It's an excellent book. It's uh, The first half of it is more or less a retelling of his time in the concentration camps. And, uh, and then the second half is the philosophy that he built based around it. And there are lots of interesting anecdotes about just sort of the nihilism that some of the survivors experienced. Uh, one that I was thinking of, one of the prisoners just stomping through a farm field and destroying the plants, and Viktor Frankl saying that, you know, it's like, why are you doing this? Like, it's just needless destruction. And the guy basically turning to him and saying, like, after everything we've gone through, what does it matter if we destroy all these crops? You know, in Germany, like, who cares? What, what does it matter? We can just destroy at will based on what we've had to suffer so yeah it's a it's a sort of um it brings me yeah like it it makes me think of like um when when your reference are, are entirely destroyed how do you how do you become hopeful how do you not repeat that cycle like if you're born in palestine today how do you not become a resentful individual and i don't know how you do that I don't know how you can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it requires, I guess, a lot of will uh, because it's very easy to become that sort of like, like resentful against the world and circumstances, and 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 this, these are very negative um, motivations, mm -hmm. which we forget yeah. about. Which is yeah, exactly what, what what Victor Frankl tries to deal with is how to how to process something like the Holocaust and not become just full of endless hate i mean he like he lost pretty much everyone he lost his wife and all his family and everything they all died so he had he had nothing left in the end but he comes up with this idea that you have to basically fix on some greater more meaningful purpose and that that is both how you survive something horrifying and also how you process the pain afterwards and if you're not able or willing to do that then there's essentially nothing left then but dealing with your your pain with anger and then the anger becomes hatred and then that gets acted out against people who you end up perceiving as mm -hmm. somewhat close to the enemy or whoever had initially wronged you it doesn't even have to be it doesn't even, they don't even have to be connected in any way to it but if they're similar enough then they're they're a viable target 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, those are, that's, anyway, yeah, <laughs> that's making me depressed now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no happy way to discuss the Holocaust. There's no happy way to discuss <laughs> the Holocaust. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so like when I was uh, when I was preparing this today, like I was reminded like Homeworld definitely brings themes of the Holocaust a lot uh and the consequences of it. And and it does like I don't think it means to do it. I don't think it's um I don't think it was written as a sort of like analogous situation to the Holocaust. But it does talk about uh the the recovery process of a people. It does talk about the extremes that could happen out of this. Uh, but it's a universe that is filled with, you know, if we, if, if I ask myself what, what public policy, what public policy failed here, I think a separation of power is very necessary. <laughs> uh, and then proper, yeah. proper international, like, space law to establish the validity of a 4,000 year old treaty. Um, I would probably, uh, advocate for also a, a universal, um, like data center or resource center where you can keep track of all the documents that were signed. Yeah. But, uh, but unfortunately in a world dominated by brutal strength, uh, none of this exists. And it's, uh, it ultimately depends on the strength of people to, to mark their way through space. Yeah. It's the classic division in, international relations theory between the realists and the liberals mm -hmm. the realists thinking that all that matters is relationships of power and the liberals thinking that no they're these superstructures that will end up governing the relationships uh, irregardless of power um but uh in space with no no you know <laughs> super government space body mm -hmm. then it is ultimately at the discretion of the handful of tyrants who run these galactic civilizations it makes it very reactive because it's impossible to enforce ahead of time you only you can only react to things um but yeah <laughs> certainly a cliffhanger that these guys are going off to do, do they end up winning against this this empire how does that play out because it's a series of games right yeah um yeah it's a series of game uh they they do end up winning and then they end up uh like it, it kind of loses its purpose at, at the second yeah. game already because at this point it's just like we need to repeat the gameplay. Yeah, that uh, happens so often. It's a bit in the less sense. <laughs> uh, it's just they, like they do end up uh, yeah. discovering um, the uh, an entire network of galactic relays, which allows them to go to places in space where they have never been before and nobody has never been before. Uh, and then it opens up the door to this sort of like infinite expansion on the team. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's really, that's really just to repeat, uh, cause ultimately they end up retaking their planets, expulsing the, uh, the old empire that was there and then re, uh, relaunching a new mothership in space. Uh, I think to find, uh, to find those relics in space, but it, it, it stops making sense at that point. Yeah. Cause you just <laughs> arrived to this new planet. Why would you expand resources to an absurd amount to send another mothership in space where you could just pull those resources on your actual planet and then try to make a living there. Yeah. But, and I don't think they ever get uh, galactic reparation for uh, the slaughter of a <laughs> million of them. Uh, It'd be a lot of uh, space bucks for sure. Yeah, like it's essentially like the entire United States get, uh, get destroyed uh, save for what's a city of half a million people? Uh... 
half a million people. I don't know, Portland maybe. So yeah, so it's it's just Portland, Portland just Portland survives. <laughs> is essentially what happens. Horrifying. It's essentially what happens there. And then uh, and then I wish they could say they had, they left uh, they lived happily ever after. But, yeah. Uh, uh, but we don't really know. It's never really explained. They did release a third game, which was uh, more about the prequel. So all of this, like um, the political intrigue in the desert, comes from that 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 third game of the series. Yeah. Uh, which concentrate on the discovery of that 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 relic in the desert, and then. Um, um, that makes it. That makes it like instead of having a mothership, because the, the big base of the game is you have all your ships on the big ship, and you launch them like an ant nest. You're like the ant nest in space. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the third one, since you're not in space and you're in a desert, you have what's called a land carrier, which is essentially like an air. It's like an aircraft carrier, but on uh, gigantic tank tracks. <laughs> uh, uh, and it's a moving platform in the desert. It's pretty cool. That's pretty fun. cool. That's a cool visual. It's a, it's really fun visual. It's all about uh, it's it's. I'm sure the the it reminds me of the Mad Max visual, like with big uh, desert and plumes of smoke behind yeah. behind things. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm hoping Dune, the next movie Dune by Villeneuve, will be that. Yeah, I'm super excited for that. I, re- I really, really want to check that out. I watched the original movie. It's pretty good. It's I better than I've it. heard it described. I've only read the book for that. Mm-hmm. I started to read the book too. It, I, I have issues with the prose, but uh, it's it's still it's compelling enough to keep going through. I think mm-hmm. um, if you uh, if you're if you're done with your summation of it, <laughs> I have an interest. I have, if you'll indulge my take. Yeah. On this sort of thing. I, what I really like about this storyline for this game is that it's a modern take on the origin myth. We've discussed it a little bit. We, we touched on it a little bit about how there were, you know, initially we had gods that we used as our origin point as a civilization. And then when we entered into the enlightenment, we started developing different ideas where could have humanity have come from i brought up how the nazis tried to find the origins of the aryan race in tibet and you you brought up timbuktu all these ideas of atlantis of different super powerful civilizations that existed that we've sort of degenerated from like these civilizations in in homeworld um I, I just find that it's super compelling, and it's something that seems to go through throughout time. We've always been fascinated by where we could have come from, and once we sort of settled that, it, that there's likely not a supernatural realm, the closest thing to supernatural is aliens, right? Mm. It's like this unseen force that periodically intervenes, and they don't mm. tell us clearly how they're going why they're intervening and this, this stuff really spiked in the, the mid 20th century mm-hmm. here's the book chariots of the gods i heard of it i haven't read it it's basically the idea that all of these impressive civilizational developments from the past like the pyramids or the big statues on easter island or stonehenge mm-hmm. or anything like anything like that anything that is difficult to explain mm-hmm. 
it's difficult to explain how Stone Age people could build these monumentous structures. Mm-hmm. They had to be the work of aliens. Yeah. Is yeah, the idea, yeah. right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so, the, you know, that's where you get the hilarious History Channel show on ancient aliens getting into the details of how there's no way humanity could have created these things. They're, they're too complicated. The people were too simple at the time. Or maybe the people were complicated, like the Mayans. Yeah. You know, they had pyramids and they had this extraordinary knowledge and fascination with space. Mm-hmm. And why would these people who are in loincloths, why would they be interested in space? Aliens. It, aliens. <laughs> aliens. Because that's it. That's why they focus their entire civilization on space. It's because aliens, they were trying to get back yeah. to their creator. Mm-hmm. Do do you think they conceived? Sorry, do you think they conceived? Because um, I think it's obvious uh, to see some a god is indistinguishable from like a very very advanced alien. But do you think they have this idea of aliens like we have them? Like there are people living out there, or did they have this idea that aliens were more of a godlike figure, sort of like uh, like a uh, incorporeal fig- figure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. There does seem to be some kind of fluidity throughout different civilizations as to whether God is in all things or whether God is some sort of embodiment of a person. It seems to vary mm-hmm. considerably. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's hard. To, it's hard to definitively say how they saw it, but it's clear that there was some mix of, of both. Mm-hmm. I would say. Um, I think the I think the human equivalent to like the sort of like um, uh, reckoning moment that you have in Homeworld would be if we found life on Mars and it was a carbon-based life form that was very similar to the Earth life form. I mm-hmm. think this I think this would be a similar pivotal moment in our understanding of the universe. Well, that's the idea behind panspermia, right? Is that there was some sort of celestial body. It could have been Mars. It could have been an asteroid or Mm -hmm. a comet. And it either had biological material on it or it had hit something else. Mm -hmm. Like maybe maybe something hit Mars and Mars had life on it. And then it hit an Earth and transferred the material there. Yeah. It's a very popular idea, even among people who are legitimate scientists and not just people who are purposely trying to establish an alien origin to sure. humanity. <laughs> There's a bit of a, a bit of a, a willful bias, you know, toward for these people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's very interesting. I hope I can I don't know. I don't know how we would react if we found this. And I know it's just a hypothetical Yeah. Um, but I think it would strengthen the, the the religious people. I think it would really. I think it would put a lot of faith. It would it would increase faith around Earth if we found um, similar or like you know like organisms on Mars. Yeah, it's interesting how how that could be interpreted in a divine fashion. Because mm-hmm. it's 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 a. I mean it's it's getting to the point where. Occam's razor applies, and Occam's razor is the the simplest explanation, not necessarily the the the, the most scientific one, but like like it, it, if you don't know, I, I like your you know, the theory of the asteroid, but like people you don't really know too if it was planted there 
And then if it was planted there, was it deliberate, was it an accident? And then Occam's razor applied, people would choose the simplest explanation. And that sometime is God. God did it. <laughs> God did it. Um, which, yeah. which, I don't know, but I mean, that's speculation. The, the, I, I don't believe we're going to find uh, anything like us on Mars. But then yeah. maybe I'll be the first convert. <laughs> Maybe you'll be the first Martian. The first uh, Mars, uh, whatever, Mars... Uh, I'm a Martian fundamentalist. I'm a unitologist or whatever. Like, <laughs> there's a other... In the Dead Space uh, in the Dead Space series, there's a, there's a bit of a religious aspect because they find this relic, and it turns out this is a relic that makes you um, uh, schizophrenic, like it makes you see shit and act yeah. out, and then it turns, you know crazy shit but it does turn a lot of people into the sort of like religion where this proves we're all one all in space everywhere and you know that type of uh, uh i i always like religion and science fiction that should be a whole episode just religion and science fiction oh for sure yeah it's kind of like the obelisk in 2001 a space odyssey yeah where it keeps you know this object keeps intervening this alien object and it keeps propelling humanity forward yeah. at these different steps yeah and it's, it's very quasi-religious that's true yeah it is it is yeah i think it's i think it is yeah yeah i'd be happy to do a, a sci-fi and or fantasy and religion episode yeah maybe. That, that's a yeah. great idea yeah i like this uh, like religion and, and sci-fi mm -hmm. that'd be that, that could be a nice one and then we could pull from different examples yeah well, uh, I think that's a good spot to to end the episode. I know you've uh, already, you can can you tease me? I want to be teased, Joe. <laughs> I can tease you, sure. Can you tease me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> the teaser for next episode on this uh, yet to be named podcast. <laughs> I was thinking. Uh, I was thinking political world building would be a good name for the podcast. What do you it's think? It's so boring compared to the topics <laughs> you're talking about. Yeah, I know. But I couldn't think of any way to title something that would be findable. Yeah. Politics, without... exclamation mark. <laughs> like in the space, people we're trying to reach. Exclamation mark. <laughs> Politics in space. That's actually no, no. way better. You need to mark the pause. Politics. Yeah. In space. In space. Yeah, like a, an old timey announcer. <laughs> I like that actually. That's pretty good. <laughs> I might, I might name it that. Uh, <laughs> um, so the teaser for next episode, which I'll be leading on, will be RoboCop, the dystopian hellscape of future Detroit. It will be how we are quickly approaching a similar world <laughs> in reality somehow somehow our dystopian fantasy of how the world would be is becoming not far off from reality and i i, I feel like in that way it was very prescient of where we were going and so yeah i'm looking forward to that one i'm very teased i <laughs> think good yeah. Glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, glad, that's glad good. I so, so I, I rewatched my RoboCop movie. Yeah. Movies. The nice thing is that it is eminently watchable. It is it is both interesting in the ideas it presents and also incredibly entertaining to watch every time. Do you include the remake? Uh, I do not because it is a pale imitation. Okay. Is it a is it a remake or a sequel? Yeah, it's a remake. Okay, so we can ignore it. It can be safely ignored. I might, I might do a little 
I might watch a few parts of it again just mm-hmm. to see where they went off the rails, but okay. it's clear that it's just one of those movies that was made based on the intellectual property that exists behind RoboCop. It's 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 a very well known brand, mm-hmm. and it was just essentially recycled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, is it? Uh, sorry, we won't get too much into it, but I, I'm I'm kind of hoping it's gonna be this sort of like sci-fi that they made in the '80s, where they're like, in the year 2005, the world <laughs> is dominated by robots. <laughs> you, know, you know, when they really like over like un- undershoot it, overshoot it, whatever. They get really confident that we're yeah, <laughs> we're gonna advance really quickly. So, yeah, I'm looking well. To that. <laughs> I mean, without. I mean, the the real issue with the new one not being good is that without the director, Verhoeven, mm-hmm. behind the wheel of it, it's just not going to have that cutting European criticism of American society. That is the magic sauce that makes Robocop good, and that will be that will be a main thread that goes throughout yeah. the criticism of next episode, and... If you don't, if you don't have that that essential outsider looking in and being able to judge a society without feeling like they necessarily have to judge themselves mm-hmm. or without having the blind spots of being within that culture, yeah, you you can't have the original RoboCop. <laughs> <laughs> and you see that okay. too. I think yeah. another thing that we might touch on, but probably, we're probably not going to dwell on, is you can see what it's like when he's not involved because RoboCop two came out not long after and it is a very different movie <laughs> i'll need a, i'm gonna I, I think i own them on dvd i'm gonna put yeah. them in and rewatch them uh i'll, be, right. I'll be freshen up fantastic all right. well, i'm looking forward to it cool man <laughs> all right have a good one yeah you too bye-bye bye